This programme was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Hawke's Bay, your community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible. And welcome to Peace Witness for 2023. Today, my name is Liz Remiswell, and today we are going to be talking with Myrie Leadbetter, and who is a prominent human rights activist. She's been very involved in the East Timor campaign and the anti-nuclear campaign. She's an author of three books, and she does come from a, a famous family. Her mother was Elsie Locke, a prominent peace activist, social justice campaigner, feminist and children's writer. And also she has, as her brother Keith Locke, who's former Green MP and very prominent activist as well. So welcome to us, Myrie from Auckland. Oh, kia ora and thank you, Liz. Thank you, Myrie. And so well, let's just start off with you gro- You growing up. You must have grown up in a very kind of active, activist household, I think, in, in Christchurch. Was it must have been a little bit unusual in the time? It was a bit unusual in the times, of course. Um, I was uh, uh, a child during the, you know, the height of the Cold War in the 1950s and going to school as the child of uh, communist parents uh, it did mark me out a little bit but um, uh, on the other hand we lived in a very friendly neighbourhood in Christchurch with a lovely uh, playground in front of us, the Avon River and yeah I still, it, it didn't um, uh, it didn't cause any social isolation, put it that way <laughs> we were, you know, we were a pretty happy family well, that's good news. How many of you were there? Um, there were four of us, four children. Uh, I have an older brother, much older brother, uh, seven years older, and I have my brother Keith, which you just mentioned, and um, a younger sister, Alison. All involved in their different ways in environmental and social justice causes. Mm-hmm. And was your father active? In the movements my, as well? My father, yes, my father was a lifelong communist. Um, my mother left the party, as many, many people did, uh, around in 1956, at the time of the Hungarian Revolution. And, to, you know, her trajectory then became that she was much more involved in um, campaigning for peace and in her own children's writing. So... Yeah, there were, um, uh, I mean, my my parents both wanted to see a world of uh, peace and freedom, if you like, and a, a world where human re- beings were treated equally, um, but their activities and their focus uh, sort of veered a bit in later years, but they stayed together very happily. Oh, well, that's good. Do you remember anything particular your mother doing that was particularly noteworthy? Oh, gosh, how to pick one thing out. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, when we were young, she was uh, was also very involved in the cultural life of Christchurch and um, 
she encouraged my interest in things like junior drama and she even wrote some little plays actually that uh, that we were able to perform on interesting themes uh, and I, I kind of again you know it's the sort of the times isn't it as I, I entered my teenage years the nuclear issue was very much to the fore because that was the time of the Cuba missile crisis and the sense that the world was really on the brink and um, my mother was active in the campaign for nuclear disarmament and I, I very much followed her lead in that respect and joined in um, the early peace marches that were held on Parliament at Easter in the early 60s and formed lifelong friendships and contacts at that time. Mm. So was um, were your parents also conscientious objectors? No, um, not exactly, no. Um, uh, my mother was involved in anti-conscription campaigns uh, beginning of the Second World War. But no, I don't think uh, you could ever describe either of them as a conscientious objector. And I, I think the that Christchurch was quite a strong place that was very involved in the anti-nuclear issue. Um, people it, it, like it um, Larry Ross it, yes. and so on. Yes, yes, and it was very notable for its um, diversity. And I guess that was something that my mother really revelled in because she she'd uh, you know she joined the Communist Party in the 1930s as many did, seeing it was the you know the best way to. You know, work for change in a world that was very much um, riven by the depression and so on, um, and you know, terrible things that were happening at the time to people who were unemployed and that kind of thing. So that's when she joined the party. But when by the time she left it, I think she could she was really aware of its narrowness, as it were. And joining the uh, campaign for nuclear disarmament meant she was suddenly in touch with all kinds of people that she necessarily have mixed with previously like um, religious leaders and you know people who were from that conscientious objective background and she reveled in that she thought that was one of the and I, and I certainly agree with her that was one of the great strengths and is still one of the great strengths I think of our peace movement is that we can unite um, despite diversity of opinions on other issues That's really important isn't it? Mm, mm, I think so. Mm. Yeah. So, um, tell us a bit about the the anti nuclear campaign that finally came into law in 1987, and of course David Longy was the, the the famous prime minister who who gained international repute for his comments and his his eventual support, I guess, of that. Yes. Yes, yes. Well, I have been um, kind of thinking back on those years a bit recently because there's a, a new book out, which you may know of, which is about Owen Wilkes. It's an edited book um, of different contributions about his life. And I did contribute a chapter to that too. But um, thinking about Owen has been very interesting. And I think perhaps what came out of the exercise of producing that book is a reminder of the huge importance that Owen Wilkes was to the peace movement because he was our 
you know, he was our, our expert. He was the one who dug out information that might have been hiding in plain sight, but only Owen had the skills to find it out. So we actually were very well informed about New Zealand's links to the nuclear arms race and to wars in our area generally. So, um, you know, that, that was I think that was a huge strength. We weren't just sort of, uh, you know, talking generalities. We had very specific campaigns against links in this country to the nuclear arms race, including, of course, bases and ultimately the, the visits of nuclear-powered and nuclear-armed warships. What's happened to those... Sorry, you go on. Oh, sorry. What's happened to those campaigns now, Mari? Because um, it's not something we hear very much about now. No, 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 that's... uh, Yeah, it's it's a little bit of a regret, isn't it, that we, we aren't still... I mean, we are not in a situation in the world where we're free from nuclear danger. Um... In fact, if you you know you consider what's happening in Ukraine and the tensions that are currently existing between um, the United States and, and and Russia, the dangers of escalation, even you know war by mishap, are, are very real at the moment. Very real. Um, so yeah, in some ways, it is a shame that the nuclear danger seems to have gone a little bit off the agenda. It's not totally off the agenda and, uh, you know, there's a magazine called The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist which regularly produces its doomsday clock. Gosh, I hadn't just looked up to see exactly where it is, but it's only a few minutes to midnight of that, I think. And um, when they assess the risk to the world, they take into account not only the nuclear danger, but they also look at the danger from climate change which I think we can't avoid doing in, in, you know, in the world today. We've sort of got to look at the two things together, really. Mm. And, of course, the escalations of tension between the United States and China also, which are both nuclear powers. Yes, they're very much linked, I think. They're very much linked, yeah. Yeah, so just thinking back again on our earlier campaigns, um, it's always, always kind of interests me. I mean, these days we have so many more ways of communicating with each other simply and easily with email and WhatsApp and cell phones and goodness knows what. But when we did our organising in the 1980s against um, nuclear-powered, nuclear-armed warships and when we campaigned for local nuclear-free zones, which was another important part of the campaign, we didn't have any of those things. We just used... (laughs) (laughs) Well, I suppose to some extent face-to-face interaction, but also we had these wonderful things called telephone trees. Mm. It constantly goes through my mind that, you know, one of the things we're missing in our activism today is that um, sense of close personal contact that we have through phoning each other up and Mm. um, getting, you know, telephone tree worked by you phone so many people, six or ten or whatever it was, and then they carry on the chain and find another six or ten. They worked pretty efficiently. And it also meant that local groups were quite close too, didn't it? Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, that was another, another you know, we, we really organised on a local legal level. Some areas were more organised than others. There was an incredibly strong peace group out in the eastern suburbs that uh, 
it went on for many years, I think. It was really very effective. They were, you know, part of all the mainstream protests, but they also did things in the local area and raised consciousness there. What about getting together nationally? I suppose that was a much uh, more difficult process in those days, and also in those days too, I suppose, toll calls were probably a bit more expensive too. <laughs> we wrote letters, good grief. <laughs> Uh, um, and letters and put put them in envelopes and put stamps on them. Um, <laughs> newsletters <laughs> and newsletters. We, that's right. Just um, no, we, we did have national gatherings. We had some very important um, major peace conferences. Um, I titled the book I wrote about the New Zealand peace movement, "Peace, Power, and Politics," because peace, power, and politics was the name of two big conferences that happened in our era, one in 1968 at the height of the Vietnam issue, uh, which brought a whole lot of international speakers to New Zealand. Pretty amazing, really. Great line-up of them. Celebrities, notables, Krishna men, and all kinds. Um, And then there was a second one in 1993, also called Peace, Power, and Politics, um, in you know, that, that that was Nikki Hager and other people like that worked incredibly hard on that conference. And that, you know, that was a real gathering too at the time. So, you know, we're, we're in 2023 now. And um, <laughs> that's nearly 30 years later. It is, isn't it? Yes. And I guess some would say we are in still in very great nuclear danger. And well, we're not even aware of it. No, it's still 13,000 nuclear weapons or something around that region in the world today. And, yeah, I mean, there's a situation in Ukraine, you know, where the threatening stance um, just keeps, seems to just keep escalating despite um, warnings from many military figures. It seems to be military figures that are kind of perhaps warning that this war is unwinnable and has to be some kind of um, exit strategy. But so far it's hard to see that happening. So I find it all quite scary. Mm. What about um, journalism, Mari? Do you think that has changed as well over over these decades? The quality of journalism, the diversity of points of view? Diversity of points of view, certainly. Um, yeah, no, that's one thing, you know, when I did my research for the Peace Book, um, and it really struck me that I, the campaign for nuclear disarmament, although, you know, we were quite controversial and, and veterans from the Second World War thought we were, uh, you know, some kind of traitors or something, and, you know, so it was, it, it, at times it was a pretty fierce, sort of confrontations going on, but we were able to get our point of view across. We, we, you know, we we could put out a press release and have our view on a certain situation um, published in the paper. You don't actually see that happening much now. Why do you think that is? Why do I think it is? Well, (laughs) there were more journalists. Papers were... Less, you know, the journalists were less um, 
constrained. I think these days, journalists who can actually go out and about and report on meetings and events has diminished. The media is increasingly under foreign ownership, of course. It's probably part of the reason. Um, it's not my, you know, not my huge field of expertise, but it, it, it certainly is the case that uh, mainstream media is more difficult to... Not impossible. It's not impossible. There are, you know, there are parts of our media which are open to contributed articles and, uh, well, Radio New Zealand quite often uh, interviews people from outside the mainstream, if you like. Hmm. Yeah, okay. So what about your two other books, Myrie? Tell us about those, um, please. Okay. Well, the first book I wrote was um, about East Timor. It's called Negligent Neighbour, New Zealand's, New Zealand's complicity with the occupation, with the invasion and occupation of Timor-Leste. So I was really looking at the way in which New Zealand had contributed to the tragedy that unfolded um, in East Timor. I'd been involved in the East Timor struggle throughout the 90s, and when East Timor finally got its freedom, I still felt that it was important that we look closely and not just turn a blind eye to the fact that all the years of the Indonesian invasion we had been supporting Indonesia militarily and also diplomatically. And we missed so many opportunities when we could have helped turn things around for the Timorese um, had we taken a different stance. And that was under, you know, to me, one of the shocking things was that was sort of under both Labour and national governments, our policy on East Timor and uh, our um, determination to remain close mates with Indonesia was bipartisan. So mm. that, that book... <laughs> How did you get involved uh, in that campaign, Mari? Oh, it kind of sprang from my involvement in the anti-nuclear movement because as we... You know, I mean, initially we probably, the campaign for nuclear disarmament had sort of British roots. Um, that's where the name came from. But as we went on, of course, we looked at what was happening in our neighbourhood and the test, French nuclear testing and... You couldn't really look at what was happening in our Pacific neighbourhood without looking at colonisation. And so what was originally a nuclear-free Pacific movement quickly became nuclear-free and independent, which meant we were looking at the various liberation struggles in the Pacific and New Caledonia and French Polynesia. And sort of on the fringes of that really was East Timor um, and, and West Papua. So... That kind of sparked my interest in East Timor, and I guess the 90s became a very interesting time for East Timor. It tended to be a wee bit off the radar during the 80s, but in the 90s, um, beginning with a horrible massacre that happened in the capital, Dili, known as the Santa Cruz Massacre, um, international awareness really grew. So... Uh, yeah, that, that that was a time when you could, you know, you could campaign quite effectively because the issue had been brought to public notice more strongly. In part, thanks to one particular journalist, actually, Max Stahl, who 
was present at the time of that Santa Cruz massacre and filmed it. So, you know, the films of the shocking massacre went round the world. Pretty, pretty important. Mm, importance of journalism again. <laughs> yeah, he was, unfortunately, he's, he's died since, but he was a very brave man. He, he was one of the few who actually, you know, the terrible time when the Indonesians were trying to prevent East Timor's liberation in 1999, before the peacekeepers went in, just about all Western journalists evacuated, but he stayed. He stayed in the mountains with the people who'd had to flee, and he could report from there. Pretty amazing. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Great. And what about your third book, Mari? Okay, so the third book is the book about West Papua. Mm. Um, I guess sort of similar kind of... Um, to the East Timor book in a way, only this time I'm writing about a struggle which is ongoing and there is no liberation so far for the people of West Papua. So this book is called See No Evil, New Zealand's Betrayal of the People of West Papua. And again, I went through, you know, released documents and traced New Zealand's history of complicity with the ghastly things that happened to the people of West Papua who should have gained their independence back in the early 60s and in fact were on a a course to independence in the early 60s but were derailed. They were derailed because um, Indonesia was still staking its claim to take over the territory and which had originally been part of the Dutch colonial territories and um, Western powers decided that what Indonesia, this is simplifying it of course, but Western powers including the US decided that they uh, wanted to placate Indonesia and they were part of a negotiation called the New York Agreement which um, meant that gradually Indonesia was able to take over the administration in West Papua and then cement it in place with a horrible phony referendum that took place in 1969 where they only allowed about a thousand, just over a thousand people to actually vote out of a population of over a million. And the people who did vote, of course, were pretty much dragooned into doing so. <laughs> Nobody voted against it. They were really under such a severe threat. Mm. Very, very important documentation and important campaign that... Again, many people are probably not aware of these days. No, um, no. Well, again, that's a sad thing, really. It, it stays under the radar, but and there are so many horrific things happening in the world, of course, but West Papua is our neighbour. You know, it's mm. the other half of the island of New Guinea that it shares with Papua New Guinea, which did gain its independence. They're the same, I mean, multitude of different tribes and languages, but, you know, they're the same people, really. Mm. Well, Mari, I'm sure we could talk a bit longer, but our time is, is almost up, and I guess, um, you know, you could be ready to hang up your boots and retire, but do peace activists ever really retire? <laughs> well, I've kind of... I'm not taking any front lines in organising these days. I, it's hard to do that, but um, I... I think probably my, my contribution is still in terms of writing, so I'll try to keep doing that if I can. Have you got another book coming up? Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, well, thank you very much, Mari, for everything that you do and everything you've done and your huge contribution, and it's lovely to talk to you. Thanks for making the time for us today. Oh, thank you. Nice to talk. This programme was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Hawke's Bay, your community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible.